The following program is part of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations China podcast series. For more information on the National Committee, visit us at www.ncuscr.org or connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, or Weibo. I'm Mara Elizabeth Cunningham, a program officer at the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. With me today is Michael Meyer, a writer and professor of English at the University of Pittsburgh, who is also a fellow in the National Committee's Public Intellectuals Program. Michael's research and writing explores the interaction between history and daily life in contemporary China. His first book, *The Last Days of Old Beijing: Life in the Vanishing Backstreets of a City Transformed*, was published in 2008 and garnered widespread acclaim for its first-hand account of life in the Beijing Hutong. Today, we'll be discussing Michael's second book, *In Manchuria: A Village Called Wasteland and the Transformation of Rural China*, which recounts the history of China's northeast as well as the story of Michael's time living there in a small village that he calls by the English name *Wasteland*. Michael, welcome to the NCUSCR China podcast. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. In the book, you briefly tell the story of your first trip to Wasteland while researching an article on historical architecture. And at first glance, the village doesn't seem like a place that anyone would choose to move to. But <laughs> you seem to have come up with the idea almost immediately. So, what was it about Wasteland that really grabbed you from the start? It was just so different than anything I had seen in China before, especially because you know I was in China as a Peace Corps volunteer in Sichuan, and then I was living in Beijing in the Hutong. And to come to a place that was so naturally beautiful, you know, with a with an actual horizon that you could see,、um, and bright blue skies, and low hanging clouds, and it's hugged on three sides by foothills, and it's near the Songhua River,、um, which you can walk to from where I am. And so it was funny to me. Like I expected, you know, I think most people do the word wasteland, right? And then you get there and you realize, oh my gosh, it looks nothing like a wasteland. It looks nothing like anything I'd seen in China before, actually. Right. So, how did you come to make the decision to move there? What was so, the process? I think、um, it's time to write a book when the book you want to read doesn't exist. And so, after I finished the Beijing book,、uh, my wife had said, "Okay, well, now it's my turn.、Um, we got to do what you wanted to do, and now I want to choose where we're going to live." And so,、um, we came to New York City, where she was working as an attorney. Um, and then I started getting interested in the notion of, you know, what's going on in the in the rural half of China. I wrote a book about the urban half and the changes going on there, but what's going on in the countryside? And my wife got tired of her job here、um, in New York, and and we sort of glommed onto this idea. We caught into this idea of, well, why don't we move back to your village? You know, Francis, my wife, why don't we go back to your ancestral village? Um, and I should put ancestral in air quotes because ancestral in the Northeast often means like going back all the way to 50 years because so many people, <laughs> were, you know, migrants there. And so we packed up here、um, in New York and we moved. And she lasted a week before she said, <laughs> "I don't want to be here anymore. It's freezing. Everybody's treating me like a, a eight-year-old girl again, and I want to resume my career." So she went to Hong Kong. And I was now stuck in the village where she lived as a little girl, and it was really funny. The people in the village really felt sorry for me because they thought, "Oh, you're a lot like us. Like one spouse goes to the big city to work, the other spouse stays behind、um, and watches over the house here." So that was the the genesis of it. You know, first of all, I wanted to write about rural China. Secondly, why this place? It's because I had family there. Right. It's interesting. You said. Francis went to Hong、yeah. Kong, and you were stuck in Wasteland. <laughs> but really, you could have left、mm-hmm. if you decided to. But you, you really were interested in this story of rural China. I was, and I was. I, I loved the idea too. Immediately, you know, after doing the Beijing books, I lived in Dashilar, which is 600 years old, and、um, Beijing itself is 600, if not older than that. If you go all the way to the Jin Dynasty, it could be as well as a thousand years old. And looking at all that history, all that history, 
And then to come to a place, and a place where people live the history, like, you know, in Beijing, they will accost you and tell you what happened in 1629 in this lane. Um, to go to a place like Wasteland, this village, where the only historical document was a carved stone at the village entrance that said, in 1956, it became a village. You know, that it was really like, oh my gosh, that's it, 50 years. And um, so I took it as sort of a challenge that this would be fun to dig a bit deeper and see all the history that actually exists here that people are forgetting about or, or not recording. Right. So I'm curious, after spending about three years in Wasteland and uh, really immersing yourself in the local community, you see a lot of changes going on during your time there. So if you were the mayor of Wasteland or the <laughs> head of the Eastern the Fortune, party secretary of the Eastern Wasteland, Fortune yeah. Rice Company, mm -hmm. what are the sorts of changes that you would, or what would you do for the village? Maybe <laughs> maybe you wouldn't change anything. No, it's but a, what do you think the village needs right now? It's a good question, and it's something that um, one of the characters in the book, Auntie Yi, who had grown up in this village, she could still sing the Manchukuo National Anthem in Japanese. She was there under Japanese occupation. She was there for land redistribution. Um, and she was a Communist Party member and was a village cadre. And she was the only person um, who had ever asked me this question. No one in Beijing had ever asked me this. No one elsewhere in China had ever asked me this, which was, how do you know when a place is developed just enough? Maybe, she said, our village has come to a point now where once it was swampland, now it's a prosperous rice-growing area with per capita incomes 50% higher than your average Chinese farmer with pretty good infrastructure with a new school. Maybe we've reached our nadir here, right? Um, our climax, I should say. And if I were instead the village secretary, the party secretary or the village, like he's at Xunjiang, the mayor, or the head of the agribusiness that's running things, I would say the opposite. I'd say we're just getting started. Mm -hmm. Because the way I increase my portfolio as a government minister uh, or to go up the ranks into the government, or if I'm a, a business person, a business owner who wants a return on investment for my investors, I would say, wow, we're just getting started here. We have a really good rice crop. We have a very stable, happy population. We do have good um, schools and pretty good infrastructure. We have this new hot spring resort. Why stop now? And that's okay. when you see them, you know, in the book I talk about this, these plans they have. Of, we're going to build a ski resort and a new airport, and there'll be a highway. Mm, and I would Olympics sit, here. Yeah, and I would yeah. sit there, and my face would keep falling. No! Um, but I realized, again, I'm not from there. And, with, you know, for example, the... Um, the person who owns Eastern Fortune Rice is not a villain in the book. He comes from the poorest family in the village. It's actually built something. This is not an outside investor who's coming in and doesn't have any regard for the people who live here. He is one of them. And so I do understand, and I'm very pragmatic about my reporting in China, too, in that from their side of things, if you grew up eating wowotol, you know, right, the horrible cornmeal cakes, if you grew up on a mud road, if you grew up with a, a dilapidated schoolhouse, you too would want to say, I'm going to transform this. I'm going to make mm -hmm. this into something. Right. Absolutely. So you've touched on this already, but in your time in China, as much as you've been a writer, you've also mm -hmm. been a teacher. So mm -hmm. you started out teaching for the Peace Corps in Sichuan. Yep. You taught in Beijing. You taught as a volunteer in Wasteland as well. Yep. So I'm a little curious, um, how... How would you say, or what would you say, are some of the similarities and differences that you've seen in students in China over the past 20 years? What, what's changed in the classroom, or what stayed the same? When you asked that question, I immediately flashed on the back row in every classroom of just a, a mass of black hair, because the, the, the worst students are in the back row with their heads down. You know, It doesn't matter if it was 20 years ago at the <laughs> Sichuan University, or if it was in uh, Beijing Elementary School 10 years ago, or present-day Wasteland in an elementary school. Um, I think the big difference, honestly, is is not only are people more connected, you know, with cell phones and they're wired and stuff, but their outlooks are just much more connected. They, 
they think nothing anymore. It was, you know, people would speak in like odd whispers of um, in Sichuan, the student who dropped out and went to this place called Shenzhen. And they'd be like, oh my gosh, I can't imagine that. That the whole notion of even finding an apartment on your own, let alone a job on your own, was anathema at that time. And and now even the elementary and the middle school students I was teaching in Wasteland, if they weren't already, they were all trying to prepare to go to a university in Jilin City or Changchun or Beijing or somewhere else. But a lot of them even had like international dreams, you know, mm-hmm. in a way that is not unrealistic because right. here, you know, they know who my wife is, for example, who went on her own to Beijing and enrolled in university and learned English and made her way to Berkeley and went to law school there. And she's not an exception in that area. You know, right. Jilin has the highest literacy rate of any rural area or rural province, I should say, in China. And so people have connections with Japan, with Australia, with Korea. You know, they, they have that, that um, coming and going much more. So that's the biggest change, the international outlook and the wherewithal to get there. Right. Yeah. What about the content of what's in the classrooms? Has that changed at all? Um, no, but <laughs> the propaganda has changed markedly. Okay. Um, and so I did not see, you know, study hard every day um, and, and you will keep rising up and up. I did not see um, study the three represents. I did not see development as the only principle. Instead, in, in Wasteland, it was quite different, actually, in that the the elementary school and the middle school, their propaganda in the hallway was Confucian Analects. Interesting. You know, they were going back to that sort of standard um, as opposed to, you know, party dogma instead. Right. So a lot of in Manchuria covers your travels around northeast China, Mm -hmm. and you're looking for pieces of the region's history, which Mm -hmm. this is a region that's really rich in history. Mm -hmm. A lot Uh, of forgotten history, A lot of forgotten history. So I'm curious, what was your favorite place that you visited, and why did it capture your interest so much? I, you know, looking for the Willow Palisade was uh, my favorite journey because that was unearthing, you know, this lesser great wall that once formed a thousand-mile barrier um, into the heart of the northeast where the Manchus tried to keep Han Chinese and Mongols and Koreans from moving into what they considered their land. Um, So that was interesting because Wasteland sits right in the northernmost apex of that. Uh, But the thing that I keep coming back to when I think about what I enjoyed most about finding was there's a spot um, about three hours downriver from Harbin um, where Japanese pioneer families were brought um, or dropped off, I should say, by the Japanese army, the people who ran Manchukuo. And in this village, it's called Fengzheng, Many Japanese mothers waited with their children for what they thought were going to be Russian rescue boats coming uh, downriver to get them, um, but they never showed up. And so the women put their children on the shore, and they stepped into the Songha River and killed themselves. And um, Chinese farmers in that area picked up these children and adopted many of them. And it's an interesting place to go to because it's a different read on Sino-Japanese relations. And this is something I liked about the Northeast in general, that our sort of standard narrative of of how China teaches history that it inexorably leads to the communist victory and the liberation of of China um, is a bit messier in the Northeast. And there's a lot, it's more like palimpsest, you know, it's a lot of different layers of narratives that have been written over it over and over again. And so that particular story intrigued me because there are Chinese historians in that area who are trying to mark those docks where the women left their children on shore as a patriotic education base as well to show Mm -hmm. that Japanese civilians were also victims of Japanese imperialism in in the war. So I like that. It's a different reading on what we hear, you know, of how China portrays its war with Japan. Right, right. So I'm a little, I'm curious about your research and your writing process because a lot of the research you did in libraries Mm -hmm. in the United States and Mm -hmm. in China, I suppose. um, Yep. And But when you're sort of in the field, when you're traveling around, you're doing interviews with people, you're having conversations, a lot of what you write about just comes out of encounters that you have. 
So how do you how do you capture all this? Do you do recording? <laughs> do you do do you write notes as you're talking to people? Do you just try to remember everything and then rush home and get it down on paper or in your computer before you forget it? I take notes as I'm going. Um, I, I am a big believer in patience. I, my my reporting process is sort of being a gray wolf in the woods looking at something. I I notice that I get my best material when I go to a place and I'm there for a while and then I leave and I come back. Because mm-hmm. when I come back, people ignore me. They go, oh, you're back. Oh, I didn't think you'd come back. Oh, he's back. And then mm-hmm. I'm ignored, and I can sort of blend in. It's no right. longer a question of who is this guy? What's he doing here? Who are you related to? Um, and so I find out with the village, those moments when I would leave and come back, like if I went and visited Francis in Hong Kong and came back, there'd be a change in the way people reacted around me and the material I could gather. Um, generally, when I'm traveling, I find that if I just stand still long enough, someone will come and tell me what I'm doing there because they kind of assume like, oh, you must be here for the, and right. they'll mention some local artifact that no one else would know about. You know, it's not in a guidebook. It's not on any map. It's not even in, in a Chinese guidebook. Um, and so I rely on that. And then lastly, I do do recordings and I do recordings specifically when I'm sitting down with people and I know we're going to have, say, an hour long conversation because I really want, and what I do with those recordings then is I have somebody transcribe them into Chinese, you know, faithful transcription. I do the translation, but then I sit with the person um, whom I'm interviewed, and I'm going over line by line to make sure I'm getting sarcasm, jokes, any um, allusions that I'm not picking up on. And the other thing that's useful about this now is my books are being translated. You know, the Beijing book is in Chinese. Inventory will also be in Chinese. And I like that I have an original transcript of their quotes. So I'm, I'm not listening to them translate it into English as they talk, and then I'm giving this to a translator to put it back in Chinese somehow, which will be garbage. It'll be like a game of telephone at that point. Mm-hmm. So I do use the recorder for those longer sit-downs. Right. Yeah. Well, you mentioned that this new book um, will be translated into Chinese, and yep. I know that with your first book, it took a while. Mm-hmm. It was several years after it was published before it got translated. This one, it seems like it's happening much more quickly. And In fact, I think I heard you say that you knew before you even finished the book that it was going to be in a Chinese edition. So how did that change how you told the story or how did that affect, what kind of mindset did you have when you knew that you were going to have audiences both in the West and in China? It was a good change. I'm glad it happened. It made me open up the storytelling to be a lot more personal. Um, I think, you know, with the Beijing book, I just say, here I am in Beijing and oh, Beijing was a place I love very much. It's also where I met my wife. And then I don't bring my wife up again in the book because I'm telling a story about this Beijing neighborhood which is fine, but that for a reader, that's sort of um, a rope-a-dope of like, well, wait a minute, you mentioned this very personal detail, and now we're going to go back to that? With this book, because I knew there'd be a Chinese audience as well, I made sure that she, I have the first chapter, you know, it's introducing me and the village, we're on stage. I made sure she gets the second chapter. Mm-hmm. So right away I know that Chinese readers are going to be very interested of like, well, what kind of person comes from this village, makes her way to Beijing, then to California, and marries this guy? Right. Um, and what's her reaction to this village now? And so... I like I like that process of trying to balance two audiences now in mind because in the end, my ideal audience is an airport bookstore buyer, right? Mm-hmm. It's somebody walking by to catch a flight and they go, "What's this? Oh, I'm going to China. Cool. I don't know what. The, I'll learn something new about this place." Um, and now I have something too for Chinese airports. I hope. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so has your wife read the book? She did, and, and to her credit, she waited until it was all done to read it because okay. she didn't want to interfere with the process or um, be revising it as I was writing it, and I. I appreciated this because I found I thought by living in the village it'd be a lot easier to do the reporting than it was in Beijing when I was living among strangers. It is so much harder to write about family because they are weighing it. Remember yesterday when we talked about the, I'd rather you not say, or I should have said this instead. <laughs> it's a constant revision that's going on with the storytelling, which is fine over time, but you do get to a point of a writer, as a writer saying, okay, well, listen, we you've told the story once. You can't, 
I, I can fact check it, but you can't keep making yourself sound better and better and better <laughs> in these subsequent versions of it, right? Right. Yeah, and that happens. Yeah. yeah. You've uh, you've been doing a lot of book talks in the U.S., mm-hmm. and I believe you've done a couple in, in China. China as yep. well now. So how, what kind of reaction have you been getting over there? Uh, in Beijing, you know, it's funny. Like the Beijing book, I thought I was writing about cultural heritage and about architecture and about a neighborhood. That book now in China is perceived as sort of a treatise on the need for affordable housing in big cities. Interesting. Right, that the hutong are actually affordable, and they're a place where uh, migrants can come in and lower middle class and young students and artists can actually afford to live and make their way uh, in the big city and slowly become Beijingers. With the uh, Manchuria book, I was just in Beijing giving talks, and I'll I'll do a, a China tour later this year, but being interviewed by Chinese journalists this time, around for the Manchuria book, what people really wanted to talk about was um, this sort of new socialist countryside of what Mm -hmm. they call. And they wanted to know if it was good or bad, frankly. And they were asking for value judgments that I'm not in a position to make right now because it's really too too early to tell. Uh, But people are really interested in this and that because Chinese writers don't write about the countryside. This is one reason that Chinese intellectuals are now some some call Pearl Buck Chinese literature um, because Buck did this in the 30s. Um, when urban intellectuals would never write about rural areas. And so um, I was being asked a lot of very complicated farming questions and policy <laughs> questions that I frankly didn't know the answer to. And journalists were saying, look, there aren't a lot of books about this in China right now even, about what life is like in the villages. Great. Well, yeah. thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Thanks so much, Mara. Thanks.